and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an analysis of how the war between Israel and Hamas is impacting electoral politics in the U.S., as a new poll indicates a drop of 11% amongst Democratic voters in support for President Biden since the war began in early October. Joining us from the UK is Andrew Payne, a lecturer in foreign policy and security at the City University of London and formerly the departmental lecturer in international relations at Oxford University, where he was previously the Headley Bull Research Fellow in International Relations and a William Golding Jr. Research Fellow at Bracenose College. He serves on the board of Chatham House in London and is the author of the new book, War on the Ballot, how the election cycle shapes presidential decision-making in war. Then, with the new House Speaker a champion of the big lie, having rallied more than 100 of his colleagues to question the integrity of the 2020 election, and still to this day will not say whether Biden won the election, we will speak about the challenges ahead with disinformation flooding into the coverage of the war in Gaza from X, enabled by Elon Musk, and how the 2024 election will be impacted by fake news and deep fakes. Joining us is Emerson Brooking, a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab at the Atlantic Council and co-author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. He is an expert in the fields of disinformation, terrorist communications, and internet policy, and recently led an initiative to secure the integrity of the 2020 U.S. election. Previously, he was a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he studied U.S. defense policy. Then finally, we'll look into the big wins for Labor, recently topped by the UAW getting the big three automakers, Ford, GM and Stellantis, to agree to new contracts that deliver significant pay raises to end the strike. Joining us is Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation who was previously a reporter for the New York Times where he covered labour and the workplace for 19 years. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labour, and we will discuss his article at The Atlantic, U.S. Unions Winning Big Gains Amid Great Reset in Worker Power. And joining us now from the U.K. is Andrew Payne, who is a lecturer in foreign policy and security at the City University of London and formerly a department lecturer in international relations at Oxford University, where he's previously the Headley Bull Research Fellow in international relations and the William Golding Jr. Research Fellow at Bracenose College. He serves on the board of Chatham House in London and is the author of the new book, Just Out, War on the Ballot, How the Election Cycle Shapes Presidential Decision-Making in War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Payne. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, thank you. And obviously, since, certainly since the Iraq War, American presidents have tried to pivot towards Asia and get out of the Middle East. And there's something about the Middle East that is so toxic to American politics in the sense that it even questions whether or not the United States controls its own political destiny. Because if you go back to uh, Sirhan Sirhan assassinating Bobby Kennedy, which obviously led to Nixon's presidency, and then the Ayatollah tanked Jimmy Carter, and now we learned that there was collusion uh, with the Republicans in the terms of an October surprise. So in effect, uh, the Ayatollah brought us Ronald Reagan, and then you can make arguments about George W. Bush and Osama bin Laden and also 
Saddam Hussein. So here we are again, where a group of Hamas terrorists have whipsawed the United States back into the Middle East. And it's not entirely clear who is going to be the winner here. How do you see it? Yeah, no, I think your, your analysis there is, is absolutely correct. I think this is, um, it's turned at least Biden's Middle East policy on its head. You know, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, we were supposed to be exiting this era of the forever war, was bringing an end to that commitment to the wider Middle East region and those conflicts, which of course sucked up so much time and, and energy. I think it's interesting if you look at sort of Biden and his Middle East policies so far, he's essentially delegated that to you know mid-level NSC staffers, people like Brett McGurk. And the instruction that basically had was keep things quiet. We, as you say, we're pivoting to, to Asia. It's finally happening after years of saying that we're going to do this. And I think, um, you know, it's really uh, the, the capacity of that region to bring uh, the United States back in is uh, is uh, quite incredible. In fact, one thing I, I noticed, I, if you follow uh, Foreign Affairs, the sort of foremost magazine of, of international politics, there's a recent article by Jake Sullivan. And if you look at the print issue of that uh, last week, he has this passage where he says, you know, Biden's policies in the Middle East have been a great success. The Middle East is quieter than it has been in decades. That's a quote. Um, in part, thanks to these administrations, you know, behind the scenes work with normalization of relations. Uh, but actually, if you look at the digital edition of that exact same article, that paragraph has been scrubbed. Um, just a kind of indication of how the tectonic plates of geopolitics in that region can can suddenly shift. Uh, and often in ways that, as you say, have political political implications. And of course, Jake Sullivan was on the Sunday talk shows here on ABC declaring, quote, there have been deaths of thousands of Palestinian civilians in this conflict, and that is an absolute tragedy. Those people did not deserve to die. Those people deserve to live in peace and safety and dignity. So there's a change underway following President Biden's unambiguous endorsement of the Israeli war and then if then his brief trip to Israel, which of course I think was a somewhat humiliating given that the Palestinian leaders, PA leader didn't show, neither did Abdullah and Sisi. So he's all in on it. But I think I think there's a change underway in the White House in terms of their messaging and their focus now on the humanitarian plight of the Palestinians. Is that inevitable? I don't know what kind of television images you're seeing in the UK, but even here in the United States, you're seeing lots of television images of wounded and traumatized Palestinian children. Yeah, I, I think that's going to have a huge impact. Look, I mean, you know, Biden's instinct on this, I think initially at least, was to hug Netanyahu pretty tightly, in fact, in the literal as well as the metaphorical rhetorical senses. And for Biden, I think that reflects a a decades-long commitment to Israel that is basically rooted in a sincere, even emotional commitment to the security of that state. And there was once a time when that would have been the safe bipartisan position. Uh, to some extent, it still is. You know, there's a majority of the Democratic Party and even some Republicans who have praised Biden's handling. But you're right, there's a shift. Um, the politics of the Middle East have shifted in both parties. Uh, and the commitment that Biden has, it stems... I think as much from muscle memory of dealing with these issues, you know, for years prior, but it does definitely come from a different era. I think these images that you're seeing that you kind of allude to, we are seeing the same things this, this side of the pond. It's dangerous from, uh, you know, the democratic side for Biden, 
there is a considerable progressive faction that has become over the past 5, 10, 15 years much more critical of Israel, much less comfortable with the support that um, you know, US government has given that state. And I think it'll be interesting to watch, you know, if we see mounting evidence of even even more civilian casualties, even greater disproportionate use of force by Israeli forces, then those cracks which have been papered over because Biden has basically been a pretty progressive president so far might break out into the open. And I think that's a significant political risk for Biden. Well, already polls indicate that Biden's job approval rating among Democrats has dropped 11% just in this last month. And of course, the war started on October the 7th. So he's already bleeding young voters uh, and he can't afford to lose them. I think that's right. I mean, the, there is a slight caveat here, right? So where do those voters go? I mean, on one hand, there is a risk of a third-party challenge. You know, there are potential figures like Cornel West who are explicitly anti-war. They may gain traction. I think in today's context and with the you know, US political system, that's quite difficult. I think the risk is actually less about a kind of primary challenge and more about total disillusionment from those voters. In my view, I think the next election is going to hinge you know, above all on turnout. People have made their minds up about who they support between Biden and Trump. So the real question is going to be, is this an issue which leads you know, a significant section of the Democratic base to just stay at home? Well, in your book, of course, Andrew Payne, War on the Ballot, How the Election Cycle Shapes Presidential Decision-Making in War, you cover the Vietnam War in Iraq. And it's obvious going back to the Iraq War, in fact, I recall at the time uh, speaking with uh, Senator Bob Graham, who was the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, that one of the key moments was when the Democrats took that vote to authorize the war. And it was based upon pretty sketchy intelligence. And Bob Graham told me that he tried to, you know, let the other, his, his fellow senators on the Senate Intelligence Committee, let them know that this was pretty thin, and the State Department's Intelligence Bureau basically dissented, and the case just wasn't there. But most of them voted, uh, you know, for the war, including Kerry and Edwards and Clinton, and I don't think Biden was on the, but he certainly, he voted for the war, yeah. and of course they were all remembered Al Gore's vote against the Gulf War. But the Democrats, as the loyal opposition, truly failed us at that time. So tell us about what you found out about that, because I recall that being at a key moment where the loyal opposition really let us down. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting case. And, um, you know, I think the sort of broad message of the book, which you kindly mentioned there, is that there's this conventional wisdom that politics stops at the water's edge. And it's just not true. Um, you know, even decisions where the president is making decisions about war and peace with you know, the national interest in mind have to take into account the political context, the political risks of any option that they choose. I think with Iraq, and the same thing happened with Vietnam, the specific example you mentioned about the timing of the authorization, and there was no secret about when uh, those uh, votes were actually put to Congress. It's before a, uh, an election. Same thing happened with Vietnam, in that case, a presidential election. Of course, Iraq was a, a midterms election. Uh, in 02, and they know that elected officials have to be sensitive um, 
to uh, you know, the politics of using force. I think Democrats have always had a bit of a weakness when it comes to foreign policy, a sense of pressure from particularly moderate Republicans, internationalist Republicans who are a dwindling constituency in the current environment, um, but a pressure to demonstrate their strength, demonstrate that they're not weak on foreign policy. And we've seen that time and again in every single conflict that the United States has ended up in. Um, so it will be interesting to see, you know, the dynamics of a conflict in the Middle East um, can be slightly different to some of those conflicts. The debate isn't so much about how much um, support are we giving um, to a particular side. It's as much whose side are we on uh, in this current conflict. Um, but it will be interesting to see that play out. Well, indeed, you know, that Democrats have always been me too in terms of not wanting to be soft on communism and not wanting to be soft on terrorism. But just in terms of uh, the history or the hidden history, going back to Vietnam, of course, you had the intervention of uh, Kissinger and Madame Chiang Kai-shek in urging the South Vietnamese not to make a peace deal, which Johnson was trying to do at, at the end there. And interesting enough, you point out, of course, that it was uh, his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, that tried to tell him not to escalate that war. That fell on deaf ears. And just more recently, we've learned that former governor of Texas, uh, Connolly, uh, was a, an envoy of the uh, Reagan uh, campaign team going to make a secret deal with the Iranians to hold on to the hostages, which, of course, hurt Jimmy Carter and helped elect Reagan. So it's actually pretty bare knuckles, isn't it, when you look at the history? I think it is. And, you know, this cast of characters, there are some fairly cynical, <laughs> cynical characters among these. Nixon, uh, you know, foremost uh, uh, amongst them with his, uh, you know, he was literally on record, H.R. Haldeman said that he'd, he wanted there to be a monkey wrench thrown into the peace negotiations uh, in 68. Um, you know, there's mounting evidence that. And you're absolutely right in terms of the sort of October surprise scenario uh, in U.S.-Iran relations. I think the evidence on that still remains uh, circumstantial yet plausible. Um, Look, I think, you know, there's cynicism here, uh, but there's a fundamental reality where, which is that, um, you know, presidents, they have dual responsibilities. On one hand, they're the commander in chief. They've got to pursue the national interest. On the other hand, they're elected office holders. They are, you know, they have cut their teeth in, in the current thrust of bare knuckles um, political fighting. And they've got to make sure that, you know, they protect their policies from political opponents. Now, in an election year, as you sort of rightly allude there, there are political opponents at home who face incentives to um, undermine the state of policy of the United States. Um, and that can you know, do, do real damage to the coherence of the foreign policies that the president wants to pursue. In Johnson's case, that was quite extreme, right? He realized that he couldn't uh, reconcile these competing strategic and political tracks and ended up withdrawing. Uh, Nixon was maybe a, a more deft foreign policy and political operator and managed to uh, pursue a more cynical path that kept South Vietnam afloat for uh, enough time that it, it, it assured his re-election. But these are challenges that all presidents as elected office holders uh, have to face. Uh, and it's not just political opponents at home that are paying attention. It's, you know, uh, foreign governments as well that are looking at the, the four-year electoral cycle and, and making their assessments of runners and riders based on it. But in terms of this current war, it's a little ironic in a way that Biden is all in with Netanyahu, who he really dislikes and dislikes everything he stands for. And yet he rushed over there and embraced him. And it would seem to me that that has a lot to do with electoral politics, because our politics here in the United States 
are entirely money-driven. Uh, legislators, essentially, a telemarket is to spend most of their days dialing for dollars as opposed to doing the people's business. And there's no question that Jewish Americans are very active in politics and particularly in terms of donations. So is that a factor? I mean, it would seem to me clearly a huge factor. And whether or not that's going to pay off in a way that Biden may get and the Democrats may get a lot of support for their policies vis-a-vis -vis Israel. But at the same time, as we pointed out earlier, they're bleeding voters on uh, that they desperately need uh, younger voters. So uh, how much do you think this is about our electoral politics in terms of campaign finance? I, look, I think it's a mixture. Um, I, you're absolutely right that, you know, Biden's relationship with Netanyahu has not always been particularly rosy. You know, the experience during the Obama administration, particularly the conflict between um, Netanyahu and the administration over the Iran deal, when Netanyahu was literally in Congress speaking against uh, the policy of the White House, which is a fairly extraordinary uh, episode. Um, you know, there's a there's a degree of arms length relationship between the two. I think in Biden's case, there is certainly politics in this, but there's also there is some um, you know geopolitical thinking here. I think it was actually important to be fair to Biden to make that stance, not just because it you know gave an image of being a statesman returning to the, um, you know, the days when there would be a problem anywhere in the world and the US would rock up and try and find a solution. You know, it certainly harkens back to those days and there's political uh, capital in that. But I do also think that, um, you know, it was an attempt to limit the escalation. Um, if we get into a scenario which is not beyond the realms of imagination, that Iranian-backed proxies, you know, step up their involvement, they've already resumed strikes on US positions in the in the wider region, um, if that happens, we're in a totally different ballgame. And that brings not just geopolitical context, but I think the even more significant risk is a political risk. And you alluded to it right at the start of our conversation. US-Iran relations are hugely infected by um, political controversy. Iran has been a graveyard of presidential ambition for over 40 years, right back to Jimmy Carter. Uh, and I think, you know, the uh, politics of the current crisis would look pretty much a trifle uh, compared to what we'd have if you know this this expanded beyond Gaza. But it's, uh, the, other, the one other thing I just want to mention is not just the Democratic side he has to pay attention to, right? He's also looking at the Republicans, and I think historically the Republicans have been you know pretty intrinsically pro-Israel. That's still fairly strong, but what we're seeing today is a bit of a disconnect or some rhetorical gymnastics that the Trump wing of that party are having to reckon with, having, you know, becoming increasingly isolationist in their view otherwise. Um, you know, even Trump stumbled a bit in his first comments when he seemed to blame Netanyahu. It's not unique to Biden to have that um, a little bit tense relationship with the Israeli uh, leader. Uh, but it's, you know, it's on both sides. It's a, it's a very fraught situation which will, which will unfold in uh, uncertain ways. But Biden, of course, has been going out of his way to try and deter Iran from entering the war with the aircraft carriers, etc. And it's hard to know exactly what the relationship is between Iran and its proxies, given that the Al Qassam brigades did this attack, and whether or not they're what kind of a relationship they have with the Hamas leadership is still kind of murky. But on the Israeli side, there are concerns that Netanyahu may have ambitions beyond the notion of 
destroying Hamas, which means he has to kill all of those fighters, and that's not going to be easy. But it looks as if the plan now is to flatten the north of Gaza, occupy it, and then force everybody down into the lower half, and you know, essentially be living in tents, and then turn to the Arab world and say, you know, it's all yours, or the UN, it's all yours. I mean, is this may be a little more cynical. In other words, there may be a clash between Biden's concern for the the humanitarian catastrophe underway, and Netanyahu and his the right wing Israelis' broader ambitions, which has always been essentially to either pretend that the Isra that the Palestinians don't exist or find some way to humiliate them to the point where they'll leave the land of Judea and what the Israeli right considers to be greater Israel. Yeah. No, I think that analysis is absolutely correct. And I think, you know, we are focused understandably on the sort of short-term crisis um, unfolding at the moment. But if you think longer term, the classic sort of David Petraeus line of how does this end? This is going to be a long, costly campaign. Netanyahu signaled that this is not a traditional set-piece military battle. Getting Hamas out of Gaza is going to require you know, a really tough counterinsurgency campaign that could take years. Now, the interesting thing there is, well, what happens then to political, political climate in the United States? If this it drags out for you know months, years, do we get a degree of fatigue? Or if Netanyahu actually is successful... Uh, in flattening Gaza, in getting rid of Hamas, you know, I can't imagine a scenario in which Israel has any appetite for governing that region, which is going to be extraordinarily difficult. So then the question is, who who do they hand over? Is it the Arab world, as you say, is it the UN? If there's a need for peacekeeping forces to sort of over, oversee reconstruction, who wants to pick that up? You know, is there in the US an appetite for this kind of you know, long-term commitment of U.S. forces in a region where we've just declared that we're not doing that anymore. And I think, you know, events change, but the example I think here that I would point to is actually during the Reagan administration, um, when, you know, there was a peacekeeping mission in Lebanon where, you know, congressional pressure grew uh, against that and essentially forced the administration to abandon that role. Um, you know, it's interesting to think through that could be the direction in which we're heading. And, of course, it was Hezbollah that bombed the marine barracks, which led to the U right. U.S. withdrawal. And, right. and then and then the, the Reagan administration had a little, little war in, in Grenada to yeah. distract us all from the catastrophe of losing all those Marines. So right. we could continue this conversation for some time, Andrew, but I'm afraid we've run <laughs> out of time, and I appreciate you joining us. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And again, I'm speaking with Andrew Payne, who is a lecturer in foreign policy and security at the City University of London and formerly a department lecturer in international relations at Oxford University, where he's previously the Headley Ball Research Fellow in International Relations and the William Golden Jr. Research Fellow at Bracenose College. He serves on the board of Chatham House in London and is the author of the new book just out, War on the Ballot, How the Election Cycle Shapes Presidential Decision-Making in War. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the challenges ahead with disinformation flooding the coverage of the war in Gaza from X, enabled by Elon Musk, and how the 2024 election will be impacted by fake news and deep fakes. I'm goddamn rich. I'm exploding man. When I talk in the night. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Emerson Brooking, a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council and the co-author of Like War, the Weaponization of Social Media. He is an expert in the fields of disinformation, terrorist communications and internet policy and recently led an initiative to secure the integrity of the 2020 U.S. election. Previously, he was a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he studied U.S. defense policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emerson Brooking. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Emerson. And since you worked uh, to secure the integrity of the 2020 U.S. election, how does this country deal with the fact that the new Speaker of the House was a champion of the big lie, having rallied more than 100 of his colleagues to question the integrity of the 2020 election, and still to this day will not say whether Biden won the election. I, it's deeply concerning. Um, I would say that it stands as clear evidence that certain misinformation narratives will um, always have a, have a constituency, that um, no matter how much fact-checking you bring to something, uh, no matter you know, how much you demonstrate that there was a disinformation campaign, that in fact uh, the vote was credible and votes were counted, that there will still be people who have an incentive to believe otherwise and to try to capture as many people in that alternate reality as possible. So in terms of our domestic information wars, and obviously I want to talk to you about the other foreign policy landscape with Putin, Russia, China, Iran, and other malign actors, uh, but also the flood of disinformation now about the war in Gaza. But on the domestic front, what can be done? I don't know whether we can change the mind of the new speaker, Mike Johnson. Uh, it seems almost like it's a, a kind of tribal thing with the Republican Party that you, you have to believe that Trump won as a kind of price of entry. How, how do you see it? Because it, it certainly has gripped the Republican Party, the big lie. Mm -hmm. I think it was um, evident in how, um, as this question's been pressed to the new speaker, how quickly he sought to change the subject. It does seem that there's one thing that uh, people need to claim to believe, but they don't necessarily want it to be uh, dug into too deeply. And as to what to do about it, I think that the course of action, which uh, President Biden has pursued here, uh, his strategy is the right one to continue to marginalize this position and to continue to ensure that in an uh, independent and transparent way that uh, justice is done for what happened on January 6th and for uh, people who insisted 
on spreading falsehoods about our electoral processes when that wasn't the case. But the fake news industry, and I think it has become an industry, is being propelled by the supposedly the richest man on the planet, Elon Musk. And how do you deal with that? In other words, as much as Biden and the Justice Department are trying to bring the insurrectionist to justice. On the other hand, what's happening now, for example, with the war in Gaza, is that fake news, is, which is being enabled by Elon Musk on, on the platform X, is absolutely getting billions of hits, whereas a credible news source like the BBC is, is getting millions of hits. So it's extraordinary to think that you have people that literally are being rewarded by the new structure at X on these blue chip verified accounts. You've got these fake uh, sites, fake journalism sites that pose as journalists. They say breaking news and all this stuff that make it seem like they're journalists. You've got uh, war monitors and Scent Defender, which of course have been endorsed by Musk. And they're putting out the most horrible stuff, including anti-Semitic stuff. So in terms of the information wars, I wanted to get from you, since you're in the trenches, Emerson, who's winning? Mm -hmm. That is a question with a lot of parts. I I guess I'd say first that for the last three weeks, uh, myself and my team at the Digital Forensic Research Lab have been uh, continually tracking misinformation around the Israel Uh, Hamas war as it's become. And X is really ground zero for that misinformation. There's a misinformation crisis surrounding this war, which I did not see to the same extent in previous conflicts, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And the reason that there's so much misinformation and the truth is so hard to find this way, um, a lot of the fault personally lies with Elon Musk, because he's on the record doubting repeatedly and often sliming uh, even the idea that there can be an independent media, that there are people who actually care about finding the truth about a given thing. There are specific changes that Musk made to the X platform, Uh, the way that he removed verification for any credible voices, the way that he introduced a commercial incentive to get as many views as possible, regardless of whether or not uh, what was being said was was true. Uh, These Basic changes, which he personally made to that platform, have meant that it is a continual source of war-related misinformation. And it's especially troubling because even though it it seems as if X is in decline in the long run, there are still many journalists and many policymakers who use X as their way to understand what's going on in the world. They may be making very serious decisions based off of the misinformation they're seeing on that platform. So when you hear, and I'd like to get your verification of this, that these phony journalists, these fake news purveyors like war monitors and dissent defenders and others that Musk has given his blessing to and that propagate horrible stuff, including anti-Semitic diatribes, is it true that they're getting billions of hits compared to a credible news source like the BBC that's getting millions of hits? It is true. Um, The numbers you're referring to were a recent study by the University of Washington, an organization that we worked with, in fact, uh, during our defense of the 2020 election. Uh, 
and uh, they dig into the numbers and find that there were seven uh, news-related accounts which are commanding an order of magnitude, orders of magnitude, more hits on that platform than all credible media put together. Oh, God. Well, the mission uh, statement of my program, Emerson Background Briefing, is building a reality-based community in post-truth America. And I can't say that it's going well. And in a way, I'm beginning to wonder whether in a competition with the big lie, it's not just about fact-checking. I mean, in other words, do you think that if you if you have the facts, I mean, it's like an 18th century notion of enlightenment, that the truth will set you free, as the Gospel of St. John says. I mean, I'm wondering whether you can actually weaponize facts. Mm. I think that's tough to do, because many people who say still believe the big lie, um, they, <laughs> they believe their own facts. That is, a, a lot of fact-checking can sometimes be so direct um, that it, it enters into sort of a, a state of conflict with what these people believe, and then they're less receptive to it. Although it's more difficult, in my experience, I've found that um, encountering people who, you know, uh, who've dug themselves very deep down a rabbit hole or into a conspiracy theory, when you encounter people like that, you have to still try to use some empathy and even start with some of their false premises, but then keep posing new questions to them or introducing new facts or considerations to try to help them test their own uh, false beliefs and maybe realize for themselves that they're not they're not as strong or all um, encompassing as they thought. And a, an example here, for instance, is um, for people who still believe that the 2020 election was stolen, um, making sure that they're aware of um, what's going on in the prosecution in Georgia right now, for instance, the number of people who've recanted, and then you know maybe posing to them if all these people who said it was a conspiracy, but now they've they've reversed course, um, if they've all done this, do you still believe as strongly? But basically everyone who told you this lie in the first place has now apologized for it. And there will still be some people, unfortunately, who are, are trapped in that false belief. But you can still try to save as many people as you can. And how does that apply to the new speaker, Mike Johnson? Is there any way to put him on the spot after all? When he organized over 100 of his House colleagues to get aboard this attempt of his based upon a Texas lawsuit from this character down there, their attorney general in Texas, who's been on trial, even in, had an impeachment trial in his own Texas state house, and is still under federal investigation for securities fraud, etc., He's not exactly the best source, but Mike Johnson ran with this, and it was kicked out by this very conservative Supreme Court as complete nonsense. But it also contained some of the crazy stuff that these people that you just mentioned who've recanted in Atlanta, you know, including the Kraken herself, who talked about Hugo Chavez hacking the Dominion machines, etc. 
which Fox News had to pay almost a billion dollars for propagating, this character, Mike Johnson, actually, that was in his case that was brought to the Supreme Court in order to overturn Biden's victory. So surely Mike Johnson has a lot to answer for, does he not? Well, I'm not a democratic strategist, but I would observe um, that he clearly wants to pursue the work of governance or clearly wants to move on to other issues that I think for many Republican politicians, um, having signed on to the big lie, is now a source of some embarrassment for them. And that a good strategy, I think, is to continue uh, to press them, to raise that at every opportunity, and to ask, uh, you know, for instance, if if you believe that the current administration is uh, the result of a vast conspiracy against the people of the United States, you know, why are you still having this uh, oversight hearing on, say, national parks or something like that? See, there, that discordance extends to the whole caucus, and it could be useful to call that out. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Emerson, just going back to your sense that that the 2024 elections may not be as alarming as I suggested they were, what about though the role of deep fakes? Because... We started, we've got an inkling of how absolutely devastating and insidious they can be. Do you expect a proliferation of deep fakes? I do expect a proliferation of deep fakes. I believe the first domestic U.S. use was actually um, an ad produced by the Republican National Committee targeting uh, President Biden last year. But internationally, we've seen an absolute proliferation just in the really the last few weeks, there are allegations that a, a deep fake helped swing uh, the result of an important election in Slovakia, which installed a, a Russian-friendly government, which may have some implications for the uh, Russo-Ukrainian war. We've seen numerous deep fakes already out of Israel, uh, Hamas, and then I think less, in, less publicly visible, but certainly visible to uh, my team and I, just a uh, radically increasing number of deep fakes of, um, say, politicians in, in the Caucasus or in Latin America. So they are going to become a perennial part of our landscape. But that being said, just as when we talk about the, the level of misinformation in 2024, I, I think we could expect a, a flood of deep fakes, but I'm not sure yet how much different the net result will be from say the the misinformation flood in 2016 or 2020. And that's because a, a deep fake does mean that you can no longer trust what you see or hear, but there are still ways to verify whether or not it's true. And the fact of the matter is that many Americans uh, are already routinely fooled by shallow fakes or by um, photo imagery or uh, planted falsehoods, which are a lot less a lot less technically sophisticated, but still have that same net result. I, so I, I would not panic yet, but certainly the way that misinformation and disinformation are delivered, uh, that's continuing to change, and AI is absolutely responsible for that. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Emerson Booking. And of course, President Biden just put forth new guidelines, did he not, for AI? He did. Are they encouraging? They are, very much, I think. 
the big three takeaways, I think, for, for listeners here uh, would be there's a real focus on immigration, actually, on trying to ensure the best AI talent comes to the U.S. and stays here. There's quite a bit of focus on uh, medical misuse of AI that is potentially the, the creation of new pathogens or invasions of medical privacy. These are both issues of deep concern, which luckily the U.S. is thinking about early. And then last is just putting more safeguards and oversight in place for these um, largest of the large language models, which could potentially pose a national security threat. Again, Emerson Brooking, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Emerson Booking, who is a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab at the Atlantic Council and the co-author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. He's an expert in the fields of disinformation, terrorist communication and Internet policy and recently led an initiative to secure the integrity of the 2020 U.S. election. And previously, he was a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he studied U.S. defense policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the big wins for Labor, recently topped by the UAW getting the big three automakers, Ford, GM and Stellantis, to agree to new contracts that deliver significant pay rises to end the strike. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, who was previously a reporter for the New York Times, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. And he's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Atlantic, U.S. Unions Winning Big Gains Amid Great Reset in Worker Power. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Greenhouse. Great to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And over the weekend on Sunday, the United Auto, Auto Workers finalized their deal with Ford, which will include pay hikes of at least 30% for full-time workers and much more than double pay for others. And the bargaining has continued with GM over overnight and into Monday, and it looks as if GM has also agreed to a similar deal along with Stellantis. So this would indicate to me that you have to add this to all of the gains of uh, labor recently with American Airlines pilots winning a 40% increase over four years, UPS and the Teamsters members won a pay raise, and also 85,000 Kaiser Permanente workers in California won 25% minimum wage, and I could go on. So 
this is a big one, is it not? The UAW with the big three. I've seen some people say this is the biggest, most important union win in a very long time. I imagine the Teamsters might disagree, but face it, you know, the UAW is historically a very important union. This is a very visible strike against three of the nation's best known companies, uh, GM, Ford and Chrysler, which is now Stellantis. They won very large raises, 25 percent. They won on some of the other main uh, things they demanded. They, they won restoration of the cost of living adjustment. They've greatly reduced the two tiers where one whole group of workers receives permanently less than other workers. They've won a much higher starting salary. Uh, That's going to go up 68% over the four and a half years of the contract. Another big complaint of the union was uh, the company's hired so many temporary workers and the pay of temporary workers is going to rise 150%, you know, rise two and a half times uh, over the life of the contract. So, you know, the union did very, very well. You know, it had some demands early on that a lot of people didn't really take as realistic. It said, you know, it wanted a 32-hour work week. I think a lot of people thought the union was just saying that because that's what some workers were, were calling for. And as a way of saying, you know, we don't like it, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, how you're forcing some people to work 15, 60 hours a week. So we're asking for a, a four-day, 32-hour week. But, you know, on the key points, wage increases, winning, uh, getting getting cost of living adjustment back and, and reducing, almost ending the, the two tiers, the union won across the board. And that's very important. Well, they also won in terms of the battery manufacturers, right? They didn't, they didn't want that to become a sort of second-tier, lower-wage lower operation, given yeah, how mean, key it is to electric cars. As I understand it, you know, one of the underlying issues in, in the negotiations was that uh, the union was worried that the workers at these new electric vehicle plants and electric battery plants would not would not be unionized and would be earning much less, and that would eventually erode standards at the at the unionized facilities. So, as far as I know, only General Motors has agreed to make its electric vehicle and electric battery plants have the same uh, standards, same wages, same pay, same conditions as under this master agreement that the UAW just reached with GM, Ford, and Stellantis. I'm sure the union hopes still to somehow get Ford and Stellantis to agree to that. But as far as I know, those companies haven't agreed to that. Meanwhile, um, Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, very much says, you know, these, you know, these great, these great three contracts with the 25% raises, the cost of living, improvement, improvements in pension will help us hugely as we renew uh, gear up, redouble efforts to unionize auto plants in the South. So if and when the UAW does uh, unionize Toyota plants or Nissan plants or, or electric battery plants, maybe they could, you know, once they unionize, uh, the UAW could raise pay and standards there to those under the kind of master uh, pattern uh, contract that GM, Ford and Stellantis have agreed to. 
Well, along with the list of wins for Labour that I mentioned at the beginning, American Airlines, UPS, Kaiser Permanente, uh, and now the big three with UAW's win, I forgot to mention, of course, the Writers Guild. Since I'm a member of the Writers Guild, that's <laughs> a little unforgivable, but also a big win. Uh, SAG-AFTRA still is on strike. So you just mentioned Toyota, which is non-union, and in particularly having put their plants in the south along with Mercedes and others and BMW. What are the chances there of this spillover effect making it more hospitable for union organizing in these southern right-to-work states? Well, it's it's unclear, Ian. You know, on one hand, so over the past decade or two, the UAWSS has had a really hard time. On one hand, uh, it agreed to major concessions back in 2007, 2008, when General Motors and Chrysler filed for bankruptcy. So it uh, agreed to these major concessions to help rescue those companies you know, and, and keep them from totally dying from going under. And, and, it, and in parallel, it gave those same concessions to Ford, greatly reducing starting wages, getting rid of COLA, uh, allowing these this lower second tier. So. Now that so there's that problem that many workers saw the UAW as, you know, mainly a, a union of concessions. And second, there was this horrible corruption scandal at UAW where two former presidents both were sent to prison for embezzling a few million dollars, all told. So like union, you know, so like when the UAW tried to unionize folks at Volkswagen or Nissan, you know, the workers would say, "What has the UAW done for workers lately?" Plus, there's been this awful corruption scandal. But now things have changed because there's this new uh, UAW leadership that has won this, you know, great new contract that has very seriously, vigorously, aggressively mobilized its members and shown that the UAW is back. Plus, Sean Fain and his team have vowed, and I hope they mean it a trillion percent, that, you know, no corruption, we hate corruption, we're going to be an honest union the way the UAW used to be. So with, you know, these, these significant gains in the contract with the new leadership that's, you know, creating a more aggressive, more honest union, that could go a long way to persuade workers at Toyota and Nissan and and, and uh, BMW and Volkswagen in the South to say, okay, uh, the UAW is greatly improved. Let's try to join it because it will win us better wages and conditions. However, you know, um, as a result of this great new, these great new contracts, the UAW won, I'm sure that Toyota, Nissan, BMW, Volkswagen are not going to sit on their hands. They're going to raise pay uh, to kind of discourage, dissuade workers from joining the union. They're going to say, look, you can get all these things without having to join the union. So there will be a tug of war. And let's not forget, you know, Southern governors, Southern senators, Southern congressmen, Southern state legislators, you know, uh, do all sorts of things to dissuade, deter workers in their states from joining the union when there was a vote whether the unionized Volkswagen in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the governor basically said, we will not, we the state will not give you the promised, you know, tens of millions of dollars to build a second assembly line at the plant. And that made the workers worried that if there's only one assembly line at the plant, only one shift at the plant, the plant might not be viable, the plant might have to close down. And that was a huge factor. Um, Volkswagen remained neutral in the fight, but the governor was against uh, unionizing 
and many state legislators were against unionizing. So that made it made it very hard for the UAW to win there. So, you know, various Southern governors and, and senators have all these tricks up their, up their sleeves to keep out the union. Well, how do you think this will affect the politics, particularly the fortunes of Joe Biden, who's dropping in the polls, even with, even among Democrats? He's had 11% loss amongst Democrats, and that's attributed to young people who are very... Uh, I, I didn't hear you. 11% what, Ian? There's been 11% an 11 loss, loss in the latest yeah. polls, and the assumption is that these are young voters who are unhappy about... This is in the last month since the war in Israel yeah. started... The assumption is that these are young voters who are disenchanted with Biden's unequivocal support for Israel in the face of... No, I, I remember when, when Biden you know, took the unprecedented step when he did something that no other previous president had ever done, sitting president had ever done. He marched on, he joined a worker, striking workers on the picket line. He did that with GM workers in Michigan. And some people said, some commentators said, that was stupid, that's going to make it much harder to ever reach a contract with GM and the other car makers because Biden's putting his thumb on the scale. But now all three automakers have reached an agreement and it's been very favorable to, and the agreement's very favorable to workers. And I think Biden can claim that he helped this happen. And I think on the margins, it will help him politically, whether it will help him usually politically, substantially politically is another question. Um, and right now, as you said, a lot of Young people are angry at him uh, over the Israel-Gaza situation, and he'll have to work hard to win them back. And the fact that these unions, you know, that the UAW has won these good contracts at uh, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, you know, I think will please a lot of young workers. Young workers are are the most uh, pro-union age group in the country. So... What then, you, we mentioned these uh, non-union automakers like Toyota and the others in the South, Nissan and Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes, etc. There's no accident that they're in the South. What about Tesla? I mean, the guy that owns Tesla is just, he's a menace to society, that guy. Elon Musk is just a horror, what he's doing on X, uh, promoting disinformation, uh, the most poisonous uh, so, stuff. So I mean, uh, I'd love to see big, that. I'm not a big Musk fan, but we have to give him credit. You know, he's led the way in developing electric cars worldwide. And sure. that's been yeah. great for the world. But, you know, uh, is he going to become my best friend? Do we like what he's doing at Twitter? No, we don't. Uh, I see Musk kind of in the same category as Jeff Bezos. They're just irretrievably anti-union and will do everything they can to keep a union out. And, um, you know, some... People have warned that, you know, if the UAW does very well in these contract talks, and it will, it will make GM, um, Ford, and Stellantis less competitive with uh, with Tesla. Uh, I've seen studies saying that UAW workers earn about $66 an hour all in, including pensions and vacation and health coverage, whereas Tesla workers make just $44 an hour. So, UA, uh, so GM, Ford, and Stellantis really have their work cut out in develop, developing good efficient, inexpensive electric cars to compete with uh, Tesla. But I think the important thing now is and we've seen, you know, with the UAW's victory, you know, that's going to embolden many workers and other companies to say, look, UAW got this great, great contract, 25% over four and a half years. We want something similar. 
and there's this um, strike now at Mack Trucks where the workers voted down raises of 19% because they said that's not enough. 19% is usually considered very good, but they saw, you know, UAW at GM Ford and Stellantis getting over 20%. So they said, screw that. We want more than 19%. So workers' expectations are increasing. And I think that will help workers both at unionized and non-union plants as employers see that to assure labor peace, that to attract workers, they have to uh, be more generous. Well, overall, though, just on, on a final note here, Stephen, this is a real shot in the arm for labor, isn't it? I think so. I think so, yes. It's, it's been a very visible strike, you know, the most visible strike in years, and they won big. And uh, the only thing that would have been maybe done more for labor if the Teamsters, 340,000 Teamsters had gone out of UPS, uh, which, you know, would have been a much bigger strike. Uh, but, you know, this is a major union carrying out a major strike and emerging with a major victory that's getting major headlines with the president backing it and trumpeting it. So I think, you know, this will make a difference for labor. Yes. Well, Stephen Greenhouse, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, my pleasure, Ian. And I've been speaking with Stephen Greenhouse, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, who was previously a reporter for the New York Times, where he covered labor in the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent, and is the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Atlantic, U.S. Unions Winning Big Gains Amid Great Reset in Worker Power. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,